Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, we once again take a break from the Book of Romans and turn to 2 Corinthians. During this sermon, we look at the call for believers to guide and help one another in the faith for the purpose of eternal joy. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, Shepherding Souls to Joy. with me. Second Corinthians chapter one. And while you're turning there, one of the things um, that uh, I'm praying through these circumstances that the Lord has sent and many, many other believers are praying that God will bring about in these times um, is the death of fake superficial religion. Um, this, it is amazing to me oftentimes where, how God moves his people to pray. Um, and then when a whole bunch of believers find out, we've all been praying for some similar kinds of things. We, we know that the Lord is moving and circumstances like this are used of God to reveal the ignorance of weak, shallow, cliched coffee mug Christianity, mere sentimentalism. And we are praying that the Lord brings about true repentance, true religion in this wake-up call. Well, um, if you'll look to our passage here, uh, we're taking uh, another quick break from the book of Romans uh, this Sunday, and then uh, next Sunday we'll be uh, celebrating Resurrection Day uh, together. Um, if you're joining with us as a visitor, it's our normal diet uh, that we pick books of the Bible and we study through them verse by verse so that we study everything that God said, not just the parts that we would pick and choose. We're getting even the vegetables that we may not like, but God knows that we need. Um, but occasionally, um, just like we see the apostles do um, in scripture, it is necessary and helpful uh, to look at some topics, uh, doctrines, subjects that are immediately pressing upon us. And so uh, I want to look at a subject today that will help us be faithful and not waste this precious, and it is a precious, opportunity um, that God has sent with the circumstances that we have. So uh, let's look to the text, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and please look to verse 24. Not that we lord it over your faith, for we are workers with you for your joy. For in your faith you are standing firm. Please pray with me. Our merciful God in heaven, we ask, O Lord, that you will send us your spirit that you will open our eyes to see, you will give us ears to hear, you will give us hearts that are responsive, humbled, uh, willing to hear, not prideful and resistant. And Lord, that you will lead us to understand your truth and in understanding your truth, you will lead us to worship as we behold you through you revealing yourself in your word. Lord, this time is not a natural time Lord, we are aware of the fact that this is supernatural and Lord, that the only way that good will come is if you supernaturally move and work. So we pray and ask that you will. Uh, I need grace to preach in a way that is helpful and not to get in the way and say unhelpful things. So please protect me, empower and enable me. And Lord, all of us uh, from all the various places that we're gathering um, together, joining with heaven to worship, please give us help that we can hear your word and in hearing worship and be transformed. Please save souls in this next time that we're going to study. And for your people who have already trusted Christ, please make this useful to pierce and grow and convict and encourage to fill us with joyful hope and, and Lord to send us out to labor. So please bless and we pray these things through Christ. Amen. Um, Amy Carmichael, whom I've told stories to you about in the past, was a missionary of unusual effectiveness. She devoted her life to caring for uh, hundreds and hundreds of orphans in India, and most especially those that she rescued out of temple prostitution of Hinduism. She became the loving, devoted mother 
to hundreds. Uh, they very sweetly called her uh, Amma, mother. They absolutely adored her. Her story is just breathtakingly beautiful. Commend it to you. Her wringing her life and energy out, serving dark to dark, ministering, educating, sharing the gospel to multitudes. And I believe she has a high place in the kingdom. But there's one particular story I, I came across in her life here recently that um, will help serve as an illustration for truths we're going to look at in the scriptures today. Amy once sat at the bedside of one of her little children who had taken deathly ill. A little girl named Lula. The little girl digressed to the point where she was uh, suffering, agonizing in pain, gasping for each shallow death. The child was enduring such torturous misery that there came a point that Amy just couldn't take it any longer. And she left the room for just a, a, just a quick moment and she went and prayed and asked God to take the little child quickly because the agony this little girl was in was just too much. Amy said that she was not out of the room for even a full minute. And when she returned, the child was, Amy's word, radiant. Delight was on this little girl's faith, face. Amy said she looked like she had not felt an ounce of pain and wouldn't feel another ounce of pain again. The, the little girl actually began clapping like a little kid just just kind of cheering when Amy walked in the room the little girl threw out her arms to give a big hug to Amy Amy was overcome by the emotions that were there the child began to just have this delighted expression there even came a moment where the little child looked past Amy and a couple other adults in the room up into the distance looking up staring so intently that Amy and the other two adults looked past themselves up as if they might be able to see what the child was looking towards. They saw nothing, but the child had an increase of delight on her face. She clapped again and then even reached out her arms upwards and then shortly passed later. Amy said, if I'd have been the only one in the room, I wouldn't even tell that story because I'd be convinced that, that I didn't really see what I saw. She said, but two others were in the room and it affected them deeply. Amy writing about this event doesn't force a conclusion like, you know, where they're going, all right, well, what did the little child see or what, what did God do? She doesn't force a conclusion, but Amy wrote in her journal this. What must the fountain of joy be if the spray from the edge of the pool can be like that. There is joy unspeakable for those who are waiting for Christ. The goal of where our God is bringing all of those who are in Christ, all of those who are united to him by faith is endless, supreme joy. One time the Apostle Paul was uh, allowed to have a vision of heaven. Um, we're in 2 Corinthians as our starting passage. It's in chapter 12 that he actually talks about that. You can read about it a little bit later. But he talks about it, but he's kind of vague because he says, I heard things that a man is not permitted to speak. What, is, what does that mean? I'd like to know more about that. There's some mystery to those kinds of things, but really that kind of thing comes up again in the book of Revelation. The apostle John, who was given that vision of things to come, he said that he saw things he's not allowed to repeat, heard names of the Lord Jesus that he is not, was not allowed to say. There's a lot of mystery with those kinds of things, but one thing we can see is this. There are realities of heaven that are so holy, so glorious, so much higher than the earth. They cannot even be uttered here. We're not even allowed to know them yet. And that helps us understand what scripture means when it says that our minds cannot comprehend what God has in store for those who love him. Your joy is serious business. 
You had better take it seriously. Your joy is serious business. This is encompassing what God has been doing since before he cast the stars into the sky. If if your understanding of God leads you to mere sentimentalism, leads you to a mere um, inspirational quote on a coffee mug kind of Christianity, you have missed the point. God has arranged all of history and every event to bring about the endless and supreme joy of all of the souls he draws to himself as they know and delight in him. Romans 9 says, in both a hard and challenging word, but also a glorious word, it says, what if God although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that is speaking of those who reject Christ. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory. What a beautiful phrase to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called. Why has history unfolded as it has Why has God ordained the trillions of events that he already has, the events yet to come that includes all of the heartaches, all of the events that he has brought about, but namely the unfolding of the redemption in Christ and the salvation of souls. Why has God ordained all of these things in order to display the riches of his glory in order to bring souls to supreme endless joy but even that is not the end like that's a pretty big truth in itself but even that is not the end because scripture takes us further so that when we come to this endless supreme joy a joy so full if you and I felt it right now we would just I guess just fall on the floor just exploded okay because we cannot handle the kind of joy that is coming in its fullness so that when we come to that we would worship our God as only souls who have been saved from hell by amazing grace can. God is working all things for the display of himself, for amazement to be had in our hearts. The attribute of God that he most wants to display to us in Christ so that we would be overwhelmed and fall on our faces in worship is the glory of his amazing grace and mercy. So he wants to bring you and I to exceeding joy so that when we experience, when we behold him, and get it, and we understand the depths of what we were saved from, how awful a destination we were saved from, how glorious a joy we were saved into, we would be overwhelmed by gratitude and would utter praises in jaw-dropping worship. He is working to bring about worship for himself. He is working to bring us to that in the age to come. But he is also working in our lives right now so that we will come to taste of it. And all we get to do right now is sip of it. But the sips of it are so good that we come to think how great must be the full measure then. He wants to bring us to taste of it now so that our hearts would say, if this lesser joy is so good, how full must be the real thing. He's bringing us to joy. To connect this to last Sunday's message, this is how we Christians battle sin. This is is how we beat our lust. 
It's, it's with this joy. It's not just with the negatives where I tell myself, don't do that anymore. It's with the positive. We come to more and more drink of the fullness of joy. And with a robust joy, the seduction of sin diminishes. This is how we Christians suffer well. It's because we see that it is worth it. You're in 2 Corinthians. Look over to chapter 4 for a second and verse 16, a passage we've looked at numerous times. Verse 16 says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, that's our body, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. That's sanctification, what we've been studying in Romans 6. Next verse, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal Weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Our sufferings, even horrid sufferings, like Paul in all of the miseries and beatings and floggings he went through, like Peter being crucified upside down, like Christians being disemboweled, even those are light and momentary compared to the joy that is to come and they are producing a greater weight of glory in proportion to how we endure them. This is not some mere sentimental little emotion. Your joy is worth dying for. God is giving to his people through all that he is ordaining an eternal weight of glory. This is how we battle. This is how we endure. This is how we endure suffering. We fix our eyes on the glorious weight of joy and we march towards it. Every battle scar of the path of serving Christ is increasing the glory of the joy that is to come. So all of that that we just said right there is major truth in in itself. Uh, Even though what I've just said there is major truth from the Bible, that's not the end of where we're going this morning. If you're new to studying the Bible, with in this kind of way, and this is the first time you're hearing these things, that's quite a bit for a day to look at those things, but the Bible's always taking us farther. Uh, every time we climb a peak and we think, man, this is it. This is the highest truth I've ever learned in my life. There's the, surely there can't be anything more glorious than this right here. The clouds part, you look up, and there is so much more mountain to climb, we can't even see the top. The Bible keeps taking us farther and farther. So I say the things that I've said so far simply to lay a foundation, to lay some truth bricks on top of that. Let me make some things clear here. The first order of business is for you yourself to come and lay hold of this future joy by turning to Christ. Come to Christ to be saved. Jesus says you must be. If I use that language and you think that sounds funny to you, maybe you've gone to church your entire life and you've still never heard anybody use that kind of language and they maybe even scoff when people use that kind of language that you must be saved. All I know to do is tell you, God has spoken. Read the book of John this afternoon. You will see Jesus over and over again saying you must be saved. You must be converted. You must be born again. You must cross from death to life and the way is a repentant turning to Christ to trust him by faith. Jesus is the gate, the door, the bridge, the road. Come to Christ and you will have this future joy. The second order of business for you who are in Christ is to grow in Christ. This is what we've been studying in Romans 6 in our time together. We are commanded, we are exhorted Come serve, come grow, come die to sin. Let's let's give our lives to growing in holiness. And the more progress we make, the more fruit we bear, uh, the more we wring out our lives in sacrificial service, there will be even greater glory of joy to come. Scripture shows this reality, and it's important that we understand this. Okay? So, 
Ephesians 1 shows that every believer, even the thief on the cross who turned to Christ just minutes, maybe seconds before he passed, we are all receiving an inheritance. Every believer is receiving a wonderful, glorious inheritance. But 2 Corinthians 4, other places of scripture also clearly show this. There is greater glory, greater joy, greater reward, greater honor, greater commendation from the Father that comes in proportion to the fruit that we bear. And so God gives this as an invitation, as an encouragement, grow and bear much fruit and have this greater joy through this. Your holiness, the amount of progress you make in holiness, your holiness is your everlasting delight. There are even passages of scripture that um, call our holiness, that refer to it as a beautification. That, that, we are, that we are, the more progress we make now, the more beautiful the glory we will have when we come into that age to come. Of course, that's mysterious and we've got more. We want to know about those things, but we're shown those kinds of things. We're adding to the beauty of the glory we will have in the age to come. So when we come back to Romans 6, we've always got to have this in our minds. The more progress we make in holiness, the greater the joy, the greater greater the reward. And then next, the third step brick that I want to lay on top of this. And it's the third step that I'm specifically wanting to help us think through this morning. I, I know that all of that has been kind of a, a long introduction and to get to this part, but I, one of the things that we see is sometimes we can look at a passage of scripture and if we don't look at it in context of the full thing, it, we don't see all of what's there. And so when we look at the full context of what this is all about, individual parts of the Bible can, can be, we see more of their fullness and their depth and their weight and such. So, so the third step that I'm trying to help us think to this morning is this. We Christians are instructed by God to help one another onto greater glories of joy. To work in one another's lives, serving one another, caring for one another, ministering to one another, encouraging one another onto greater amounts of joy, greater amounts of reward to come. Those one another commands that we see in scripture so often, they're weightier than what we often, than what we can often see. You know, when the Bible says, encourage one another, the reason is not just because it's nice, okay? It's because this joy we have in Christ is worth dying for and our labor for one another is the labor of helping one another onto greater weights of glory to come. If you encourage one of the members of your church family who's maybe struggling, maybe teetering, hanging by a thread and you come and encourage and help them onto joy, you have helped their future glory and a billion dollars couldn't touch the reward they will receive because of pressing on harder and then you have borne fruit and a billion dollars couldn't touch the reward you will have for bearing fruit and helping your brother. We are workers for one another's joy. Ministry is about joy. Ministry is about helping souls on to endless delight. Ministry to the lost, those who are not yet trusting Christ, who have not bowed the knee of repentance to him. Ministry to the lost is helping them come to lay hold of this joy. There's a place in the Psalms that talks about salvation, is about giving gladness to the nations. And our ministry to one another as believers within the church family where this most uh, finds its application and fulfillment. Our ministry to one another to, to help encourage one another to 
um, help uh, have the accountability when we're kind of straying off of the path, when we are pushing and urging and influencing and serving one another. It is about laboring for one another's joy. So I want to spend a little bit of time this morning thinking on that truth and how we bring this about. So to do that, I want to take us to some selected scriptures. I want to take us to three of them. The first one that we looked at right there will be the first passage, 2 Corinthians 1.24. So look at the text again with me. Paul says, not that we lord it over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy. Paul writes there as a minister of the gospel, as one of their shepherds who labors to lead them and teach them and urge them and and like a shepherd, pull some of them back from the edge and, and keep them in line and influence and lead in all of these ways. And he makes the point, look, when I do this, I'm not trying to get something from you. Um, I'm not on a power trip that I'm trying to like lord over you. Look, you need to see me for what I am. I am a worker. The word there in Greek, I'm a fellow worker. So it's, it's like a companion worker is the word there. I'm a fellow worker with you for your joy. Paul says something similar in Philippians 1. He says his ministry uh, to that church right there, he says, my ministry is all about your progress and joy in the faith. God showed Paul and Paul saw himself in this way that all of his labors were about bringing souls to their greatest delight, bringing souls to their ultimate good, their greatest joy. Now, before we go any further, though, there is some clarification that needs to come because of errors um, that come. We, we hear it all the time around us. I'm sure you have as well. People will talk about the Bible and they'll, they'll say something along the lines of, I know the main thing is just that God just wants me to be happy. You know, that's the main thing. God wants me to be happy. And so this, and man, I have heard the whole gamut of the this, from divorce to adultery to taking a new lover, whatever, this makes me happy. So I know God just wants me to be happy and this makes me happy, therefore, this must be the will of God. What a damnable lie. What a scandalous twist. I'm mean, being real, you cannot be farther from the truth. It's literally the opposite. Literally the opposite of biblical Christianity of what God explains to us in scripture. So so let's clarify some things. Biblical joy is a gladness of heart that is deeper, fuller, longer than the short-lived circumstantial happiness that comes when our emotions are glad. Listen, happiness is not a bad thing. So we, we Christians shouldn't go around and be like, happy, that's awful. No, 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 happiness is a good thing. Okay, it is accurate to say in heaven we'll be happy. Okay, but here's the reason why the Bible like doesn't use that word very much. Okay, happy is too wussy of a word for what for what the full measure of joy that God is bringing us to. Okay, joy that's the right word. Full, deep, satisfying, long lasting. Okay, joy that is full. Jesus didn't say I came to make you. Happy. That's kind of the way I would think of him saying that. I didn't come to make you happy. I came to bring you joy and joy that is full, joy that lasts, joy in its full measure. This is what God is bringing us to. So there's the first thing. And then a second reason why that statement, God just wants me to be happy, is so erroneous, is that those who say it, they always mean right now. Right now. Okay, so when scripture shows us that God is going to put you and I through pain now for your joy later, God's great agenda is not to make you momentarily happy in your emotions and your circumstances now. In fact, the Bible very specifically says over and over again, if you're going to follow Christ, you have to develop a theology of suffering. 
You have to develop a theology of suffering. The Bible specifically tells us, like 2 Corinthians 4, 16, 17, 18 there, that we saw God is going to intentionally send trials, difficulties, even pain in our lives right now because it is producing something for the eternal state. It is producing greater joy. So God is working for your endless and supreme joy, not your momentary happiness right now. God regularly calls us to make decisions that result in difficulty and pain now, but obedience to him, which results in joy. So the man whose wife is in a coma and he says, well, God just wants me to be happy. So he breaks covenant with his wife to go find a new lover because God just wants me to be happy. That is the opposite of biblical Christianity. We are to choose obedience now, which oftentimes means difficulty or things that feel unhappy, but for the greater joy later. So that just needed to be clarified. But coming back to the text here, we are workers with you for your joy. The work of ministry, the work of shepherding souls is helping souls to their ultimate joy. So, you know, one brief application that I would bring here and that the Bible does in a couple of the passages we're going to look at is that this is the way you should view those who serve within the church, your, your leaders and such. It's, it's not about lording over. It's not about trying to get something. It is about laboring to lead souls to joy. But where we're going more this morning and focusing on is all of our as believers, because every believer is called to ministry. We are called to use our gifts to serve one another. All of us in the body of Christ, we are workers with one another for each other's joy. The work of the body, the church family in your life is working for your joy and you are to be working for their joy. All of us mutually wanting each other's greatest blessing, wanting each other's greatest good. And your greatest good is holiness, obedience, to push farther, go harder in following Christ for greater joy. So we talk a lot about obeying God. We talk a lot about growing in holiness and serving. And occasionally we must remind ourselves what the end goal is. We don't do it only because it's the right thing to do. We are working for joy. And that is, that is not an evil motive to long for the great joy to come and work with one another for one another's joy. So I think that helps us be ready for a couple more passages. Here's the second one I ask you to turn to. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Excuse me, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, find verse 23 there and I'll read it. Let us... Hold fast the confession of our hope. So, so that means the confession of our hopes, what we say, what is our hope? Jesus is our hope. So that is saying, let's cling to Christ. Let's cling to our faith and our hope in Christ. And we need to say that because everyday life brings these temptations to, to diminish our hope and our clinging to Christ. So let us, let us cling, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Verse 24. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Notice the progression, okay? He starts with a series and kind of works through some things. We labor for ourselves. That is our first area of responsibility. It is to lead our own hearts and souls. We labor for ourselves to keep going. And then we consider. So he gives instruction for how we are to work for the joy and the good of one another. But even the way that he words it very specifically is helpful. We consider. We give care we give effort to thinking about how to help one another on to love and good deeds. And then we do this by, verse 25, gathering together. Gathering together. I know that feels, it stings a little bit with the way that we are gathering right now, that we're not all together. But when this is all over and we gather together, we will joyfully gather together corporately. But part of the point that he is getting at is this. This is the fellowship 
This is the corporate worship of the body. This is the assembling together. This is when we gather together for corporate worship. This is the fellowship that we have. And it's also the informal fellowship. You know, it's the pizza on Friday nights, okay? It's the informal fellowship that we have with one another. We do this, we serve one another through our fellowship. It is the avenue. So this is what the local church is to be having take place. The local church is not what it is often reduced to. Where ministry professionals, the guys in the suits, they do the ministry, they give the ministry, and everybody shows up to receive. That is not biblical Christianity. Instead, Ephesians 4 shows that the, the church's shepherds, leaders, teachers, etc., he's given those gifts. Our job is to work to equip, equip all believers for the work of ministry so that all of us are engaged in lives that live ministry, that live service, that we are all functioning as ministers of the gospel, ministering to the lost to bring the gospel, ministering to one another so as to press each other on. So our gathering together, our fellowshipping, all of the ways this is to be not simply a time we come to drink, a time we come to receive, but a time we come to give. We show up together, yes, to come drink. So absolutely come to show up to drink, to draw near to God, engage with him. Um, service has been given for Sunday school lessons and instructions and preaching and we're feeding and those who lead the praying and the reading of scriptures and all these things, we come to receive. But we must also come to give. We come to give care, encouragement, service, ministry to one another. But it's not just on these formal times when we gather. It is lifestyles of ministry. The New Testament is filled with commands given to believers about the one another's. The one another's. Love one another, care for one another, encourage one another, pray for one another, keep watch over one another, etc. About 35 of them. About 35 of them. So let, let, let me kind of take a, a, just a side note application here. Um, if you're watching with us, joining, and you are not part of a local church family, um, you may be doing that because the idea got popular, okay, in Western culture, that you don't need organized religion. It's just about you and Jesus, okay? It's not biblical Christianity. Scripture tells us, Acts 20, Jesus bled to form the church. Uh, Jesus, Jesus spilt blood at Golgotha, raised from the dead in order to save souls, in order to save individuals, but not for us to stay individuals. He bled to bring us together as a body, as a people. And so there is a global unity that we have, but Jesus also formed us into local congregations, local assemblies. The local church is Jesus's idea. We didn't invent organized religion. God did. He's the one who established this and just very clearly getting into and becoming a part of a local church family. And I emphasize that because the Bible emphasizes that. The church is not a business. The church is a family. We are the household of God, Scripture says. Um, getting into a local church family is practically speaking the number one way, that's not an exaggeration, the number one way for us to do this life of following Christ. How do we grow? How do we serve? How do we live out these things we're told to do? The local church family is the first place that these things happen. And from there, we mobilize and launch out. But all that is a side point there. The New Testament has about 35 commands of one another's, where believers care for each other in the church family. And here in Hebrews 10, we're told to consider which means we are not simply to minister to one another only when it's obvious, only when it's convenient, only when there are those clear moments that present themselves. We are to think, we are to plan, we are to prepare. 
We are to lie in bed and, and, and think up how can I minister, how can I encourage, who needs, who's maybe fallen through the cracks here recently, hasn't been reached out to. We are to pray, we are to ask God for wisdom and ways to lead us in how we can serve and minister to one another. We are working for one another's great good in stimulating love, good deeds, and to keep going in one another. And then one last passage, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 14 there. This is, a, this is a, the whole passage, the several verses that come before it and such, and what comes after is life in the local church family. So know that some of that's going on. Verse 14, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. We're all instructed in some specific ways about how to care for one another in certain groups. And I think some of the point of verse 14, if you, if you look at it again, is that these are some of the ways we would be tempted to neglect or just maybe not even to think of. I mean, I mean look at it. Um, admonish the unruly. Who wants to do that? Encourage the faint-hearted. That's something we could have a tendency to um, uh, miss. Help the weak. Be patient with all. E each of these are ways that we would be tempted to neglect. So, so think through some of them. Admonish the unruly. Um, what are we tempted to do towards uh, unruly within our church family? Um, sometimes we may be tempted to just wash our hands and stay away. Okay? And certainly, of course, Scripture tells us there is a time to break fellowship. There is a time to remove, but not until there has been great labor given to help them out of unruliness that is there. And so one of the things to see is that it is just expected in the, in the life of a given church. There's going to be unruliness. There's going to be some of this that takes place and we are to minister to help those admonish by the way, is a gentle form of correction. It is to bring it up. It's not to shame and scream, but it is to bring it up. Encourage the faint-hearted. We sometimes can feel uncomfortable about that. We can sometimes gravitate, find ourselves just gravitating towards the people who have it all together, maybe towards the faint-hearted to just give a little cliched statement of, oh, but it'll work out okay. I'm sure you'll be fine. I'll pray for you. And then move on. There's also the temptation um, for some who don't struggle with faint-heartedness, okay? So let me say a word to you who are strong. If you do not struggle with faint-heartedness, sometimes there's the temptation to just sort of look at the faint-hearted and be like, well, what's wrong with you? Come on, don't you know? And then quote some scripture. Like, yeah, that fixes everything, okay? We're not told to shame the faint-hearted. We're told to help. We're told to encourage the faint-hearted. That is their temptation and you have yours. So we help them. We help the weak. It's a fact we can just naturally walk away from the weak without even realizing we're doing it. The elderly widow, the family that's rough around the edges and in a lower tax bracket, the homeless man with the unclean clothes, the depressed woman that can be a struggle to talk to because it, it seems so gloomy. But ministry means being committed to one another. Ministry means being committed to one another's good. And, I, and I, that last phrase there as well is so helpful. Be patient with all. What's kind of the typical way we see church life happen? When it gets difficult, I go find somewhere new and I stay there for two years until it gets difficult there. And then I run away and I go find someplace else that's new and always this church hopping. Be patient. The life of the local church family is to be that of investing in one another. And, and, and just like marriage in that, uh, and friendships, that there is a sweetness that comes over the years there's a similar things that happens in the life of the church family, that there is a sweetness and there are deeper levels of fellowship that come over the years when we've been through some rocky things together and been patient with one another that we keep pressing in this. Ministry means being committed to one another's good because we all know what we're working for. We're working for the greater joy. And then look at verse 15, the verse that's just right after that. See that no one you know, repays another with evil for evil but always seek after that which is good for one another 
and all people. Uh, you, you notice that last phrase there, just to kind of clarify for a second. The one another's of the New Testament are specifically spoken to believers towards believers, okay? So that's that, that's oftentimes misunderstood. That's not specifically said to go do to all people. It's not that we don't minister to all people, but you do need to know that the way we minister to the people outside of Christ, it is very different than how we minister to those who are inside of Christ. I mean, think about it. To the faint-hearted outside of Christ, how do I minister? I cannot say everything's gonna be okay. I cannot say that, okay? The way we minister to those outside of Christ, it is a very different kind of thing than those who are inside of Christ. So, so the Bible tells us that we are to have an especialiness. It really is. Especialiness to the household of God, to those who are in Christ. This is, our, this is our church family. We are committed to one another. And yeah, we are to minister to all people, but it will look differently. But within the family of God, always seek after that which is good for one another. We are workers with one another for joy for our progress in the faith. And then just a little bit of last application here. Here's part of why I thought it important for us to, to take a little bit of time to consider these things. One is uh, my meditations on joy were just delightfully, rapturously delightful. I wanted to share some of those and help your joy. But also, when we are in the season that we are in, being separated from one another, from our normal means of shepherding fellowship, uh, our, our normal functions of ministry, they're all now lessened, which means that what normally works, if I can use that word, works to sustain our faith, sustain our joy, sustain our zeal, it's all now very different in a time of a quarantine. The weak still need helped, but the normal encouragements are not there. The faint-hearted still need encouraged. And the normal means are not there. The, the unruly still need admonished and the normal means are not there. Uh, the middle of the road believer who's not necessarily weak or faint hearted, but they do not have their normal strength giving, faith producing, zeal sustaining means of fellowship and gathering together means there is some more need for grace in their lives. So all the more church family Ministry needs to be happening amongst one another. We need ministry to one another to be flourishing. I know it's also very different because normally how we would go do those things to go show up and plop on somebody's couch and spend time with them, it's not there right now. Ministry has to look different during this season. But Christian, let us increase our praying for one another. Let us increase our expressions of love through other means. Acts of service, checking on one another, phone calls, letters, getting groceries for one another. Let us increase, let us increase the worship happening in the home. And I want you to just consider this for just a moment. Take, take for instance, the children of, of our church family. In a given week, the children of our church family come here on a Wednesday night and we pray together and then they go and they memorize scripture in the Bible drill. The Lord's Day comes and they go back to Sunday school and there are loving teachers who have thought through a lesson and they invest in our children and teach them the word. And then the service comes and we sing together and then they go back for their time where they're memorizing catechisms and there's an intense Bible study that takes place. And so think about our children in the congregation right now. That means that the normal instruction and worship and guidance of their lives has now dramatically been reduced in the formal ways there's all the more need for worship to be happening in the homes. Pastor Ben and I uh, did a quick video a couple weeks ago encouraging this kind of thing. Um, but let us make our homes places of biblical education. And then just, let me be real with you as well. In the life of the church, what oftentimes is not known is that even on a weekly basis, there are souls who are hanging on by a thread and nobody knows it. Their, their hope is hanging by a thread. Their, their, their joy, their, some have faith that is still fragile. Some have a commitment level, just being real. Some have a commitment level to the church family that is 
fragile and it takes a lot of tending to keep them going in these kinds of things. And when circumstances like these mean a reduction in the fellowship and the corporate gathering, that means that some of these needs um, increase in this. Let's increase our ministry towards one another. Let's increase the amount of praying that we're giving towards one another. So this is a message that applies at all times. We're workers with one another for each other's joy. But when we find ourselves in seasons like this, let us increase it. We're laboring for our joy and for the joy of those that we love and the joy and gladness of the nations. So let us engage. And to you who have not yet come to Christ, you who have not yet bowed the knee in a repentant trusting in Christ. Listen, we started by talking about the greatness of the joy to come to those who are in Christ. Listen, as great as the joy that God is giving to his people, so great will be the miseries of those who reject him. I, I know that in our culture, nobody wants to believe that. I know our land is filled with churches who say completely different things than that. The only thing I know to say is, why do people think that if God has spoken, they have the right to disregard what the living sovereign God has said and make up their own beliefs? You be the judge, explain the logic of that to me. But all I can tell you is this. Read the word, read Matthew 24 and 25 this afternoon and tell me if you if thought this is accurate. You must have Christ. You must respond to the gospel. You must be saved. So look to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. That can happen even right now where you sit. If you will turn in your heart and in prayer, call out to him and pray for him to save you. Put your faith in Christ, bow the knee to him and ask him to save you. Let me pray for us and then I'll give some final instructions. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for what you are doing in the work of the incredible joy you're bringing your people to. Help us, God, to understand these things, to live in light of them, to fix our minds, fix our hope on them, and then, oh Lord, I pray that we will actively minister to one another in, in your church to serve one another, to work for joy. Lord, I pray for those who are hearing. I pray, oh God, that you would save souls. Those that have not yet responded to Christ, please bring it a true trusting in Christ. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this week's message titled, Shepherding Souls to Joy. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. Dot